If you could turn in your Bibles with me to Ruth, the book of Ruth. So Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings. Start at the beginning of your Bible and get there to Ruth. I kind of wish I was David Platt and could command six hours with you in one sitting. I don't have that kind of drawing power, but it would be really great because the book that we have before us is this story. It's Think of it like a novella. Have you ever read a novella? Not a novel, but a novella, right? Just kind of a, a shorter book and and, and when you're reading that, right, you, you start it, and it's usually one of those that you can't put down, and you want to go right to the very end, and it makes so much sense when it's all together, like you've got the whole story together, and so it's, it's hard. I, I actually preached a sermon series a, a number of years back called The Whole Story, and every single Sunday I preached an entire book of the Bible, over 69 Sundays, and, and so we're not going to do that today, however. We're not going to get through all of Ruth. We're just going to get through the prologue today, the first seven verses of Ruth. I would, I would encourage you, if you could even this afternoon, it's just four short chapters. It won't take you much time, maybe 15 minutes, to read the whole book of Ruth this afternoon and to do that each week as we prepare for the coming week. But let's start together today in the prologue, chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So, a man, a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilian died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that Yahweh had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. This is the word of God. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel. Huh. You know, that's just a 3,000-year-old way of saying Once upon a time. Which is quite fitting, I think, because God is the storyteller. The one who has been spinning yarns since the beginning of time. The only storyteller whose words, in actuality, create. They bring characters and beings and worlds to life. 
It's how this whole story that we are living began, right? The only way that we can understand the story of Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth and Boaz is to situate it inside of the story God has been telling since the beginning of time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you remember how he did that? By telling a story. God said, God said, God said, and light, darkness, day, night, sky, lakes, streams, rivers, oceans, land, mountains, rainforests, deserts, trees, and plants, and grass, and flowers, and bushes, and tumbleweeds, broccoli, cauliflower, carrots, apples, and oranges, and grapes, trout, and bass, and crappies, as you say it where I come from, walleye, Osprey, eagles, magpies, cattle and horses, mule deer, spiders and centipedes, beetles and ants, and humans sprang to life when God started telling a story. Man and woman. He spoke and they came into existence. And every human being sense because the only reason that we exist is because God keeps speaking he keeps telling the story he upholds us by the word of his power Hebrews 1 3 but of all those characters in his story if you will as we learned this last Friday night we are the only characters made like him made in his image made for fellowship with him and made to rule as vice regents like kings and queens in his place representing him over all creation the kingdom that he has created now sadly we all know at least most of us know that there is a villain in this story isn't there always And he is the prototype for every villain that has ever been in any story since. And because of this villain, the man and the woman were deceived by him. And the story takes a horrible turn. Dark days enter into the story. And darkness and death spread like gangrene on the palate of the world that God is speaking into vivid reality. And those who were meant to rule are enslaved as they fall into ruin. But he keeps speaking and all is not lost and the story is not over. And the arc of the plot of this grand tale, we are told, even in Genesis 3, is toward a king who will come and reestablish the kingdom But because of the fall, because of darkness and death, he can't only be a king, he must also be a redeemer. The world needed more than merely a king. It needed what the Hebrews called a goel. Someone in the family who would redeem as well as rule, who could be both sovereign and savior. God would have to visit his people. But how how would that happen? 
How could the global and universal problem of no king be dealt with and resolved for all time so that all the land and all of creation and all the world and all its people could know peace and rest again, could know the fullness that they were always intended to enjoy instead of the famine that would rob them of everything they needed? In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, what days were these? Well, they were days of chaos and upheaval. You see, the story of Ruth is set against this dark backdrop of a particularly evil time in the history of the world and of God's people. It's this moment in the story, in the history of humanity, where everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. It's a story that's captured in the book of Judges. As I was making my way through my read through the Bible and your reading plan just last month, I was reading the story of Judges. And if you're familiar with the Bible and this story of Judges, you know that it's this horrible cycle that just spins in one sense out of control, but also down and down and down and down in this, in this cycle where, there is, where there's rebellion against the storyteller, God, followed by God's move against his own characters in judgment, followed by the repentance of those characters, and then crying out to God, please save us, please deliver us. And then God sending a rescuer, right? A deliverer in the form of a chieftain or, or judge who would rescue his people and then bring a measure of rest, only to have that cycle repeat again and again and again as the spiral goes down and down and down until it bottoms out with a picture painted in graphic detail of a nation that had comprehensively lost its way. They'd become every bit as bad as the pagan peoples surrounding them. They, they were becoming the villains in their own story, rejecting God. So that we're told at the very end of that story, in those days, Israel had no king, not even God, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. These are the days that the author of Ruth is referring to. Dark days, lawless days, kingless days, needing a redeemer days, looking for a king who would rescue the world kind of days. Which, if you're a little Jewish child being told this story around a fire for the first time, you're wondering where the story is headed. How's the world going to get to the story of Samuel, to a king? What, what's going to happen between all the people are doing whatever's right in their own eyes and there's no king to a king who would redeem them? How do you get from A to B, how can a nation that has lost its way have hope for a ruler that will save them? How can a nation who has lost its way have hope for a ruler that will save them? Does that question sound relevant to your life? Do you look around and see a people who is doing whatever seems right in their own eyes? In the midst of the beauty of our valley and the joy that can be had here in fellowship with one another and all the good blessings that God gives, can't we admit that there also is a darkness that seems to pervade and at least operate at the shadow edges 
of our reality and sometimes presses horribly in. I think Paul maybe was thinking of the story of Ruth when he said in Romans 15, whatever was written in the scriptures long ago was written to instruct us and the scriptures, including the story found here in Ruth, give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. So this story is 3,000 years old, but it is extremely relevant and helpful for us today. A love story. And all the women said, amen. I told you those rom-coms would be useful. Hubby. Let's pray as we dig in. Father, who doesn't come here looking for a little encouragement? Whether we're happy or sad, delighted or despairing, we could, all of us, always use a little more hope. So as we embark on this story over the next few weeks, would you do that? Would you encourage us and fill us with hope as we hear and see you spin a yarn of rule and redemption bearing news of the coming of the King? Yes, and amen. In Jesus' name. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel... A severe famine came upon the land, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah. Do you know what I love about that? How specific it is. How, how granular it is, how small, a specific man from a specific small town in a little region in the corner of a big, wide world. It is not expected for an unknown dude from a backwater town to be the solution to national, international, universe-sized concerns. Little families and farmers and ranchers, small town kind of folk, you know, maybe like we would know. This isn't the place that people would normally look for the solutions to big picture national, international problems. But God, I think, is teaching us something here about the story he's telling and about the kind of storyteller he is. You see, God cares about details. He understands that big pictures are made up of small little dots. Have you ever... Have you ever gotten really, really close to a TV screen or like a computer monitor? Like really close in there until you can see the little pixels and then in those little pixels you see like green and blue and red when you're really, really close. I'm not suggesting kids that you should get that close. Usually my mom said, back away from the TV. But, but it's only when you back out that you see that all those teeny little colors and dots are making something that's like in 4K vividness for you to see as your moving pictures move across the screen. That's what this story is already telling us, that God cares about all the people that make up the world, all seven billion of them. The God of the universe knows about seven billion and he knows about you. And that blows me away today. That he 
knows about me. He knows about my issues and my problems. And he knows about you, every single one of you. He doesn't look at you collectively always. He sees the uniqueness and the reality that is you. And he cares about you. Jesus tells us that he knows every hair on your head or where there aren't. (laughs) He knows every tear. The scriptures tell us that falls from your eye and he stores them up in a bottle. He knows who you are today. And you matter to him. Small people and small towns and small places are where mattering things happen at God's speed. A severe famine came upon the land, which isn't all that surprising, really, because he had foreshadowed it in Leviticus 26. If in spite of all of this, all I've done for you, you still disobey me, I will punish you seven times over for your sins. I will break your proud spirit by making the skies as unyielding as iron. It will not rain and the earth as hard as bronze. All your work will be for nothing, for your land will yield no crops, and your trees will bear no fruit. God had set the guidelines for blessing and curse. So I do not believe that this famine was accidental. Happening as it did to Beth Lachem, house of bread, a land rich with fertile soil. That was the breadbasket of the land of Judah. Now, empty and barren when only 50 miles away in Moab, no famine. That's not an accident, I don't think. Why? Because they were dark days. And disobedience has consequences when everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Rebellion brings certain results. God is trying, and here's what he's doing. He's not merely trying to break their back. He wants their attention. He wants them to repent and return to him so that the story of blessing and redemption and a king can come. So the question is, what will a certain man do? What decision will certain people make? This man, will Elimelech repent? Will he choose Rightly will he lead his family even as famine stalks the land into the fullness of obedience. So a certain man left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. Come on, man. Like, don't you just want to... Only like you had one job. Consider this. Moving is not a task most people take up lightly. 
It is costly and unsettling. It means pulling up roots and leaving friends and family and neighbors. It means leaving everything you know, all the traditions, all the familiarity, all the capital and experience that you've built. It means leaving a support system behind and having to start all over building that system again, getting to know a new place, new people, new traditions. It can be a major upheaval in the life of a family and usually is really, really hard unless you've moved from Minnesota to Salida. Because I don't want you to think I'm talking about my experience. Moving is hard, but it's been beautiful for us. But usually it's really, really hard, right? It's hard. And in the ancient Near East, it's even harder because it means far more than it does to us today. You see, the gods... The gods of people, friends, in ancient times were tied to geographical locations. So it's not like here where I can move from Minnesota to Colorado and Yahweh is still my God. It's, it's different then. There are different gods in different places. It's no mistake that God had taken his people and done what? Given them a promised land. I placed you in this land and you worship me and I'm the God of this people and the God of this place. And I want you to spread this over the whole world. It was just like he had done before before the fall, right? That was the beginning of the story. At the very beginning, creating a place and then a people and commanding them to be fruitful and multiply and spread over the whole earth. So Elimelech isn't merely leaving one land for another. He's turning his back on his people and like Adam before him, He's turning his back on his God. And instead of seeing the famine as a wake-up call to repent, he sees it as a reason to run to another land and another people. And they are not the people of Yahweh. These are the people and place of Chemosh. He went to sojourn in the land of Moab. I mean, Moab? Moab had been born from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter, Genesis 19. Moab's king, Balak, had hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt, Numbers 22. Moab sacrificed their children to their God. Moab's women had seduced Israel's men, causing them to worship a false god, Numbers 25. And Judges tells the story so recently of Moab's king, Eglon, invading Israel and enslaving them for 18 years, Judges 3. Does this sound like a good place to raise your family? Does that sound better than famine and repentance? Does that sound worth moving for? And Elimelech apparently had only planned to stay for a while because that's what the word sojourn means. It implies impermanence. But we're going to see in this story that this seemingly small decision to ride out a famine in another land has long-term disastrous consequences. For the family is not there a short time. Rather, they will remain for years. Elimelech will entrap his wife, Naomi, a wife for whom it was true that where he went, she went. Where he lived, she lived. His people became her people, his God, her, co- her God. And this man entraps his wife and his son's in his dark decision. It's not just him. He's 
pulling the whole family into it. And what's more, in fleeing a famine, he thinks he's doing the right thing, he's only going to pull his entire family into the embrace of death. Friends, this is what happens when we try to act as the sovereigns of our own lives. This is what happens when we live as if there is no king over us, no storyteller who sets the rules, doing whatever seems right in our own eyes without a thought for the future consequences. This is what happens when we think one little decision apart from his design will be no big deal. Oh, it's just, it's just one little decision. That it's somehow not going to be noticed. Because we're just one person, right, in one small town, in one little valley, in this big old wide world. What does one little decision make a difference in this big old world? There's an irony here for Elimelech. Did you know his name means my God is king? And yet he's living in a way in this decision that would affect him and all around him as if God was not his king at all. Friends, what are your guidelines for making decisions? <laughs> Do you fancy yourself in charge of your own life? Where does God factor in? to the decisions that you make and how you live your life? Do you consider the long-term consequences for what might seem like small choices? You know, I think this message comes at a really good time of the year as we're thinking about graduations and senior skip day that just happened this last week. I think especially of you students as I was reading this story and the choices that you are making right now because some of the choices that you're making right now will set the trajectory for the rest of your life. Right? It reminds me of how a pilot will set a course, right? And if, if their course is one degree off, that doesn't make a really big, it's not a really big deal, right, in the first 10 miles. It's, but when you get 400 miles down that flight path, it makes a huge deal, isn't it? That one degree, all of a sudden, has huge consequences for the trajectory of that flight path. And our lives can be like that. We think it's just one little small choice. No big deal, we think. It's just one little degree. But if there are no course corrections, and course corrections are possible, I don't want to freak you out, students, like the decision, well, geez, man, now I don't know what college to go to. You're, you're freaking me out. Course corrections are possible. But I want, you to, I want you to weigh the weight, the potential weight of your decisions because the small choices you make today can end up bringing you to a place that you did not intend to go. Far from the destination that you had hoped for. And that's, right? Now, that's not just for students. That's for all of us, isn't it? No matter what point of life we're at, very beginning or near the very end. You know, I've only been in ministry for 
around 20 years. But in that 20 years, I feel like I have seen a lifetime of consequences of small decisions that have destroyed people's lives. And not just them, right? Because it's, it's hardly ever you. It's like a grenade that goes off in a crowded room, isn't it? When we make a disastrous decision, I've seen that over and over and over again. People looking back with regret in their eyes and saying, I didn't think it would be a big deal. The sojourn turned into settling there, chapter 1, verse 2. You see what happened? They they meant to go for just a little while and they settled there. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here today and you're in a place that you never intended to be. But I, I want you to know something and I want you to see it in this story. I want us to see it in this story. It's here in the beginning and it's all the way to the end. God provides off-ramps in the story that he tells. Places of further decision to correct the course, to come back home because God, and here's what I want. If there's nothing else that you walk out with today, I want you to walk out with this truth. God's grace is always the last word in Jesus. It's always the last word of the story. He's always giving us off-ramps, opportunities to get off disastrous paths that we have chosen. Then Elimelech died and Naomi was left with her two sons. Okay, do you see the off-ramp in there? She had followed him to Moab. She had left a life of fullness behind, which is interesting. We'll see that next week in verse 21. Her life was full. In her defense... I believe she had no choice as a woman in the Middle East in the ancient times but to follow him to Moab. And the blows had been relentless in her life, moving from all she knew, leaving her friends, leaving family, leaving her life, leaving her home, coming to Moab. Moab! Settling instead of sojourning. Now her husband, dead, a widow, alone, in a foreign land, under a foreign god, with two sons, and no support system, and no stability, and little hope. But now... Now, she could go home. She could correct the course. She could, but she doesn't. Tragically, she stays. And it appears the settling has settled in her too. It appears she feels her chances are still better in Moab than in the promised land. She doesn't take the off-ramp, but stays on the road that her husband had chosen, which stops me short. And I, and I wonder, I wondered, why, Naomi? Why didn't you go back home? He's, he's not ruling over you anymore. You could leave. You could return. I understand if I was talking to her, right? You, you would do that with love. You wouldn't do that with harshness. I understand that you've got two little boys here. I don't know what their ages were. Maybe they're older. You've got two sons. I understand this could be difficult, but it's only 50 miles. It's just 50 miles. Back to everything that you knew. Back to those who would be excited to see you. We're going to see that in verse 19. They're excited to see Naomi come back. 
Why didn't you go? Have you ever asked that? I read a few sentences this week from a theologian who was reflecting on roads not taken. Quote, Sometimes the biggest obstacle to returning home is our pride. We hate the thought of having to return to our homes and our families with our lives in tatters and having to admit that our previous choice was wrong. Have you ever had to admit a choice that you made was wrong? How easy was that with your wife? (laughs) Doesn't that seem to be the hardest? Or with your husband? It's kind of hardest to admit it to the people that we're closest to, isn't it? And then this, here's, here's what that theologian said. Somehow, look at me, somehow it seems easier to bear the pain of continued emptiness than to confess our pursuit of fullness in the wrong place. Okay, that's good. Somehow, for humans, it can seem easier to just stay on the same path then admit you're on the wrong path. (laughs) Every wife knows this. Dear, I think we were supposed to turn back there. No, we're not. No, we're good. We're good. Now entering California. What? How did that happen? And she's over there, "Mm mm-hmm. Isn't it sometimes that we feel, what's the old saying? The devil you know is better than the devil you don't. But the problem is, it's the devil. And he's a liar. And he's full of lies. And these are some of his best lies when he says, oh, it's it's just easier to wallow in your pain. It's just easier. It's easy. Listen, it's easier to just continue the course in the long run. Seriously, it'll get better. It'll get better. No, don't worry about it. It's going to get better. And it's a lie. And it's easy to want to believe it, I think, because repentance is hard. (laughs) I mean, in church we can go, just repent, repent, as if somehow that's easy. And I want to recognize this morning, repentance is hard. Hard Course corrections in your life, especially if you've massively messed it up, are difficult. And there are often are still consequences when you repent. If my kid comes and does some, has done something wrong and repents, I want to exhibit love and I'm going to bring the consequence, right? There are still consequences when we repent. And the road... To travel, to get back home sometimes is difficult and will take a great deal of effort. But listen to me. Disobedience will always, always, always be harder in the end. Always. Always harder in the long run. Which is what Naomi then learns when she doesn't take this off ramp. She stays and her boys marry Moabite women in direct contradiction to the wise counsel of Yahweh. She stayed and the wives of her boys remain barren, providing no heirs for the family line. She stays and after 10 long years of settling, death comes for her husband and then her sons. She stayed and now she's completely, utterly, and fully 
alone, it appears that the long road of Naomi's life has found her at a dead end. And then, (laughs) the chance for change 10 years prior, that chance, that off-ramp is followed by another. He gives her another chance. Word gets to Naomi. She hears Naomi. Then Naomi heard in Noah that Yahweh had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. Yahweh had blessed. And, and the Hebrew for this word here is a little bit richer than just merely blessing. It means literally a visitation had happened. In other words, I, I think what it's saying is Yahweh had visited his people. He had come to his people. He had seen that repentance was there. And so seeing repentance, he now brings the blessing of lifting the curse of famine and brings a blessing of the return of fruitfulness and fullness. That's what Yahweh had done. He had wanted their hearts. They gave him their hearts. So he gives them his blessing. That's all he'd ever wanted all along. The prophet Isaiah says it. Come now, let's settle this, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. If you will only obey me, you will have plenty to eat. (laughs) Let's talk. Let's settle this. Let's get this sin out of the way so I can set the table for you. And I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice something because we want to give credit where credit is due. The report that comes to Naomi is not expressed in terms like the weather broke. There was an upturn in the economy. The threat of invasion, you know, disappeared. No, the report comes, Yahweh moved. Yahweh has blessed The rains are back. The the wheat is growing. Bread is being made in the ovens. Oh man, doesn't fresh bread smell good? In other words, a central theme is being laid down for us. All of life is traced, must be traced directly to the hand of God. All of life. And this final blow, I think this is actually the final blow to Naomi. That God, Things are good back home. I mean, have you ever made a decision to do one thing and the path that kind of continued where you could have gone, you're over here and you're looking over there going, oh man, dang it, why do I always choose the line that doesn't move? Look at that person was behind me and they're already going out to their car. Don't you think it was probably hard for her to look and see that the bread was being baked again to see maybe if we would have stayed, I wouldn't have lost my husband and my sons wouldn't have married Moabite women and I wouldn't be all alone if we had just stayed. She's going to find out that all the friends that she had left, isn't it ironic that they're still there and they're alive? They think they're fleeing death and they just ran right into the arms of death. Maybe this final blow for Naomi is too much for her. And maybe in it she sees 
a second chance. I, I don't know for sure. I, the text doesn't directly say. Maybe I'm trying to see too much. Maybe it is that she actually feels the deep pain of continued emptiness. We're going to hear her say that to her friends next week. Maybe she doesn't feel that Yahweh's visitation will mean a change in her circumstances and a return of fullness for her. But, but there's something in her, whatever it is, there's something in her that moves her. With her two daughters-in-law, she sets out from the place where she had been living and she takes the road that would lead them back to Judah, back home. What will happen next? Well, you'll have to come back. You know, another aspect of this story that God is telling us is to show us how he could overcome the dark days of the judges to give the second chance that could only be found in a king who would come and also redeem his people. And while this story has as its backdrop very dark days and goes to very dark places, by the end of the story, God is going to turn all of this darkness into the way in which he will introduce the world to the light of the world. Zechariah says, centuries later after the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, connecting the dots of the story, delighting in the birth of the Messiah from the line of Ruth and Boaz. Blessed be Yahweh God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Isn't that? It's what she had heard. Yahweh visit. He sees repentance. He brings blessing. And he has. That's what this table is about. Yahweh, at a time in history, takes on flesh and visits his people. Born as a baby. Lived as the only perfect, truly human man to ever lived. Died a death so that his blood could take care of our sins and pay the redemption price to redeem us. To be the great Goel of all of God's people. Everyone who would bend the knee and submit to him as what? As king. That's what this table is about. It's remembering that the reason for our hope is God's faithfulness to his people. His faithfulness to his people. Worship team, would you come up? In the words of David Atkinson, God is committed to save for himself a people of his own. He does this not by searching for perfect people. (laughs) Wouldn't find anybody here. Rather, he does it by reaching down to rebellious sinners like me and transforming them from the inside out, which is usually a slow work, isn't it? It's a slow work. And we know this, don't we, church? as a place where anybody can grow. We know that growth takes time. That, that many times, as we're going to see in this story, God will use the events of our lives 
to strip away from us all of the supports that we've been leaning on so that we can look only to him. And sometimes that takes time. Sometimes it takes a decade to see the mistakes of the choices that we have made. And it takes safety, doesn't it? A place where we can unburden our souls, where we can groan with the pain of the difficult circumstances that God may be using to strip us of depending on ourselves to turn us to depend on him. That's what Naomi needs. Friends who will listen. We're going to see that in the story. And it takes a constant immersion in good news. Constant reminders of his faithfulness. Elders, would you come to serve our people This table is a representation of how far God would go to save you. This is an off-ramp for you right now. A choice. Will you just come with empty hands? You don't have to do anything, friend. Just come with the empty hands of of faith and believe that it's a free gift that he's offering you and receive it. Come and welcome to the great king, the great Goel, the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. On the night that they were celebrating the Passover meal together, our King, Jesus, who would come from the line of Ruth and Boaz, Moabite blood, in his bloodline. Our king took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins which is to say I think he's saying God's grace is the last word. He's sealing a promise, right? That's what a covenant means. He's making a promise to you, friend. When you drink this cup, you're remembering that his blood covers every single sin that you've ever sinned, are sinning right now in this moment, or will ever sin. His grace is the word over you today. So we drink remembering that. And now, as a people with a king and a redeemer who have remembered that, we stand with gratefulness in our hearts and sing together.